Ben Thompson, our Queen Anne Fellowship Group leader, is going to be bringing the Word of God to us today. And we love Ben, and we've heard from Ben before. We, we think God's given him a special gift to unpack the Word, and, and so we get to consider together, following his lead. Also, about to be a dad. Yes. Yeah, any day now, so we're praying for you. Weeks, probably. Yeah, hopefully. praying for you. Uh, you know, speaking of prayer, just before you get started, we could all use a little bit of prayer. We got robbed this week, our trailer. This is why we only have one projector, and it's sitting on top of a bookcase. Uh, we, our trailer got broken into. The only thing they could get their hands on was a projector and some lights and things. So there's a few elements missing this morning, but uh, there's nothing that draws a community together more like anger. And so... Uh, <laughs> Feel free to be angry with us uh, being robbed, but we do pray for our enemies here at Sedaris, so just not right now. So we'll pray, <laughs> but we will get there. Our hearts are still, we didn't find out till this morning when we realized our locks weren't on the back of the trailer, and then we opened it up and some things were gone. So anyhow, this, tough, this is a tough racket here in Seattle trying to do church planting. Be praying for our enemies and, and for us, and uh, we have insurance, so we'll be, we'll be okay. Just got to pay that deductible. So let me pray for you as we enter into a time of of teaching. Father God, we thank you for this man and the gift that you've given to him to to unpack your word for us, God. We pray that you'd give him, even now, insight and the words to speak, that you'd give him your Holy Spirit and the energy that comes through a filling, God. And so, so we pray that right now, that you'd come into this place and that you'd open up the minds and the hearts of the people here, God, that they would understand what you want to say to them today through Ben. So we're thankful for his leadership. We thank you for the man that he is, uh, that the dad uh, that he will be. Uh, We pray for Caitlin, his wife, God, as she about to enter into a a really sweet season as becoming a mother. Uh, and, And we just pray for the Thompson family, God. They're such a blessing to our community, and we're so blessed to have him here today serving us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks, Dave. So today we're going to spend our time in Acts 21 and Acts 22. Um, So go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, uh, there's some at the end of the rows. Grab one. You can flip to that there. Um, That's a gift as well, too. If you don't have a Bible, take that home. Uh, We want to make sure that you have one of those there. Um, And as you're turning there, I want to ask you a question. I want you to be thinking about what is your favorite story? Stories are important. They mean something to us there. We all have a favorite story. Maybe it's a novel. Maybe it's a movie. Maybe it's a play or a musical. Maybe it's a true story. Maybe it's the story of someone who, through bravery and valor, overcame an enormous obstacle. Or maybe it's an underdog who, who rallied behind something and found victory. Maybe it's a tale of romance. But we all have these stories that we're drawn to. And I often think that the stories that are most important to us are the ones that that challenge us to view the world in a different way. That they say something to us to say, I might, I can be a better person Or, hmm, I haven't thought about it that way there. 
Stories are, are structured often in a way to move us, to ignite emotions in us, to challenge the ways that we think there. An example recently for me was uh, my wife and I, we had the, the pleasure of going to see the touring production of the musical Come From Away. And if you haven't heard about Come From Away, it's a Broadway musical about 9-11. Now you might be thinking that that might be a strange topic for a Broadway musical. But it tells a story that people aren't that familiar with. It approaches something that many people haven't heard of. And what it tells the story is on 9-11, it tells of a town in Newfoundland. You see, what happened when the terrorist attacks happened is the United States shut down their airspace. But there were still planes flying around trying to figure out where do we go? And so this town had this old airport, and all of a sudden, all these international flights are being redirected to the small town of Gander on an island off of Canada. And it tells the tale of how this town of 9,000 people all of a sudden had to figure out, how do we take care of 7,000 travelers who are stranded here, who don't really know what happened, that are wondering, why am I in the middle of nowhere? And it tells these stories of these people as they're processing what's going on as they're wrestling with the grief and the fear and the uncertainty that all came with that day. And it tells the story of, about how the kindness and the hospitality of this town ended up transforming the lives of all these passengers on these planes there. And I remember when sitting there, I was struggling pretty much throughout the whole thing trying not to just break out into tears. Because it was such a beautiful story that showed that in the darkest days, that kindness, hospitality, grace still exists. And I walked away feeling challenged in myself being, would I have done something like that? How would I have responded there? And I walked away wanting to be a kinder person. I wanted to be a better person there after witnessing the tales of these stories of these people in this small town that illustrates the power that a story has to transform us as individuals here. And here at Sedaris, every Sunday, we invite people to consider what we believe is the greatest story. And that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the story of a God who so desperately loves us that he pursues us there. And over the last couple months, we've been kind of looking at a small part of that story. We've been focusing on the book of Acts. We've focused specifically on the ministry of Paul. And where we're at in this story is we're starting to come to that climax of Paul's journey. And we're going to be looking at, at a portion of that in Acts 21 and in Acts 22 today to see how one man's story can challenge us to change because what it does is it points to a greater story. So, 
If you're there um, in Acts 21, uh, we're going to focus, we're going to start in Acts 27, but I want to catch you up to speed. So Paul has been, over the last couple decades, traveling around the Mediterranean, going to visiting and planting churches and ministering all around the regions to the gospel. And what we're finding here is that Paul is kind of returning back to kind of his home base, and that's Jerusalem. And on his way back, he's stopping at these various places there. And on his journey back, he comes across a couple conflicts. The first conflict he comes in is he stops in Caesarea, and he's there, and he's meeting with people, and then a prophet comes to him and warns him that when he returns to Jerusalem, the Jews are going to bind him and turn him over to the Gentiles. And it creates this conflict of everyone who's there saying, Paul, don't go. Paul, don't go. You're so important to the ministry of God. And yet Paul's response is, I need to go. And so let the will of God move forward. So Paul ends up going back to Jerusalem, and before he kind of starts his ministry there, he meets with some of the leaders of the church in Jerusalem, so James and a bunch of the other leaders there, and he comes across another conflict. You see, when Paul was traveling around and and preaching to the nations that weren't Israel, he he referenced a lot about the law, and he referenced a a, a lot about how that Gentiles weren't restricted by the law. That's a problem because the law was so important to the people of Israel and the Jews. It's something they held so tightly. And Paul was convinced that because of the grace of Jesus, that people were set free from that there. And so the, the leaders of the, the church in Jerusalem wanted to talk to Paul and say, hey, this is causing problems. People are are skeptical of you. There's people who are angry or mad about you. Um, And we need to do something so that they actually listen to you. And so they ask him to support those who are following a vow, a Nazarite vow. Basically what that was was a way for people to show their commitment to God in a more extreme way. And so Paul agrees and says, hey, I'm going to support these people because at the end of what they would do in these vows, they would go to the temple and they would make a sacrifice there. And so Paul offers to say, hey, I'll pay for their sacrifices and I'm going to go with them and I'm going to support them in this process. Not to say, hey, we're we're holding to the law, but rather what he's trying to do is he recognizes he's going to a group of people and he's trying to get rid of anything that could prevent his ministry to them. So he says, I'm going to support them in this so I can go back and have a platform to speak the gospel to these people. And that's where we're going to find ourselves in, in, in Acts 21, 27 here. It's he's coming to the end of this time where these people are taking part of this vow. And what we're going to see is that kind of their plan didn't actually go as well as they hoped. So we'll start with the first in verse 21, 27, where Luke writes, 
When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is a man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and the place. Moreover, he brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all of Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them, and when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, so he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, away with him. So let's pause there and kind of all explain what's happening. So Paul is in the temple. He's with these other people. And all of a sudden, there's people who recognize him. And it says that the, that the Jews from Asia, probably Ephesus, and if you were here last week, you know kind of the conflict that happened in, in Ephesus there, um, recognize that this is a person who's been going around and speaking out against the law and has been speaking a message of grace. And so they create an uproar. And the response of the Jews is that they want to take him out and they drag him out and they want to have him killed. So they start beating him. And it creates this whole commotion in the city of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem at this time was actually under Roman rule and Roman authority. So one of the, uh, one of the author- Roman authorities hears what's happening and goes, I, I, I need to do something about this. So he grabs the soldiers and he rushes down and he, he sees this man being beaten. And his response is, I need to arrest this man. And the reason why, we'll, you'll see in the next few verses if you read those there, is that they don't really know who he is. And so this Roman tribune just assumes that he's an Egyptian who had in a few years earlier had created an uprising. And in this uprising, when uh, the Roman uh, soldiers defeated this uprising, the leader, this Egyptian, had escaped. And so somehow, in this confusion, the Roman tribune just assumes that this must be this Egyptian from a few years earlier. Well, that's not the case. That's not who Paul is. There. And what happens is that, that Paul, when he's being dragged out there, he gets the opportunity to, to pause and, and explain a little bit about, hey, I, I'm not an Egyptian. I'm actually a Jew here. And so in, in that confusion for the Roman Tribune, Paul was able to actually convince this Roman Tribune to say, to allow him to address the people who had just violently attacked him, 
who had left him so beaten that he couldn't even walk upstairs. And Paul wants to be able to speak to those people because he has a message for them. And that's the message that we're going to see starting in verse, uh, chapter 22 here. So we're going to read that there. And it says, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in the city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of the elders can bear witness of me. From then... I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus, and to take those, all who were there, and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise and go to Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken by all of the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and I saw him. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness to him, to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash your sins calling on his name. When I had returned to Jerusalem, and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance, and I saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believe in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Up to this word, they listened to him. And then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. So Paul, in the midst of the temple, stands and faces the Jews after they had violently attacked him. And his response was to share his story. The question is why? Why is Paul sharing his story? 
Why is Luke, the author of Acts, feeling like this is such an important event that he should write and tell this, that Paul is sharing his story? The answer is because, in all honesty, this isn't as much Paul's story as it is God's story. And that's something that when we come to a narrative and a story, we always need to recognize that all of this is God's story. Paul is a player in this story, and he is a major player in this story. Just as all of our biblical heroes, David, Abraham, Moses, Ruth, Esther, all of those are people we can look back and admire But in reality, their stories are God's stories. So when we read this, what Paul is trying to do is he's trying to illustrate God's story to the people who will listen. So what what is God doing here? That's what we should be asking when we're reading these stories. Is what does this tell us about God, what does this tell us about the way he acts? Because this is God's letter to us. It's his revelation to us. He's trying to communicate to us who he is. Now, sometimes that's easier said than done, to know exactly what's happening here. The good news is, Luke, as an author, gives us a few clues of how we should recognize this. And the first is in the structure of the story. And so we've read through this, and I want to kind of highlight a few points for you, because these are going to be very important. The key points of this story, Paul finds himself in the temple, and he finds himself surrounded by a group of Jews who question him. One of the details that that Luke mentions is that these aren't just Jews who are local to Jerusalem. They're actually Jews who have traveled there. He highlights that they're from Asia. That's an important factor recognizing. We're going to touch on that a little bit there as well. They cry out to Paul because Paul was speaking against the temple and the law. That is the key conflict here them. And Paul's response is to reach back out to them in loving language. He calls them family. He calls them brothers and sisters. And their response is to want to kill him. That's the plot of this story. And that's important because it's not the first time we've heard that story. Luke gives us a clue when at the end of Paul's speech he mentions Stephen. And for those of you who've been around here or have read through the book of Acts there, Stephen appears in chapter 6 and 7 of Acts. And Stephen was a deacon 
in the church. And a deacon is someone who the church leaders had decided, hey, we can't take care of this growing church. There's too many responsibilities. So they selected a few leaders to take care of the daily needs of the individuals of the church there. And Stephen is one of the first ones selected. But shortly, immediately after he's mentioned, it tells his story. And Stephen finds himself in a synagogue in Jerusalem where he's amongst a group of Jews who aren't local to Jerusalem, who have traveled from all over, who have traveled from Asia. And they approach Stephen and they confront him as one who has been preaching against the temple and the law. And Stephen's response is to proclaim the gospel to them as a family member. And their response is to try and kill him. Does that sound familiar? Is that not exactly what is happening in Paul's story in Acts 21? See, Luke is trying to draw a connection between the two. And he further emphasizes that by reminding us in Acts 21 that what Paul was there. Because at the end of Stephen's story, as Stephen is being stoned to death in Acts 8, 1, it writes, and Saul approved of his execution. It's the first time that we see this character in this narrative of Saul, who would later become known as Paul. So what's happening here? When we're reading in Acts 21, what, we're what Luke is trying to communicate us to us is that to understand what God is doing in, in Paul's story here, what we need to do is we need to be able to look back at what God was doing in Paul's story at the very beginning. It's one of the important things when we read narratives there. So we needed to know the whole story. If we really want to understand what the meaning behind it is, is we need to know the whole story. You see, Paul, in many ways, has become a new Stephen. Luke is making this connection by highlighting the same plot, using often the same language to communicate that we've seen this story before. So go back and look, and look at the transformation that has happened. And this is the important thing to consider in this is that the beginning of Paul's story. He was a man amongst the Jews who stood and heard the gospel from a Christian and his response 
was to seek the death of that person. Handful of chapters later, the picture of Paul that we have is he is now that Christian standing amongst the Jews, willing to die as he proclaims the gospel as they seek to have him killed. That is the story that we're seeing here. And the question is, what's God doing there? What does this tell us about the character and the nature of God? And we get that from Paul's story. Because what Paul says is he recounts the conversion that he had. See, Paul was going around at the time of his conversion, he was basically a bounty hunter of sorts. That he was sent out by the chief priests to go and hunt down this new sect of Christians to find the leaders to bring them back so that they can squash this growing movement. And Paul, while he's on his way to fulfill this, comes face to face with the risen Jesus. What did Paul do? He did absolutely nothing. Yet Jesus steps in and says, you're mine. When we read these stories, we want to see the heart of God. And the heart of God is one who steps in and changes and transforms the lives of the worst. This is the heart of God is one of grace. Paul's life from the moment when he's on the Damascus road is completely transformed from one who sought to kill Christians to becoming one of the prominent leaders in Christian history. Why? Because the heart of God is a gracious one who said, I love you enough to transform you. This is the story that we're seeing in the book of Acts is God acting in a way to transform the lives of individuals because God is a gracious heart. So what does that mean for you? I want to take a look at 1 Timothy 1, 12 through 16. It's up there. You can flip to it if you want to there. But Paul is kind of writing at this point towards the end of his life about kind of this experience. And he writes, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. 
The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Then he goes on to write, To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory and forever. Amen. Paul is recounting his story because he wants us to see that God is so gracious and so loving that he can save the worst of sinners. And so when you ask yourself, what does this mean for me? I'll ask you, if God can save a a man like Paul, can he save a person like you? That sin that you hold on to, that sin that you stress about, that you're worried, that brings you shame, the heart of God is so much greater than that. That he loves you so deeply And Paul writes that my story is to illustrate how deeply God loves us, how gracious he is. And so today I want to invite you to lean into that story. This is a story whether you are not a Christian or whether you've been a Christian for 60 years. This is a message that we need to know over and over again. Is the graciousness of a God who changes the hearts of the worst of sinners and does it not because of anything we do, but purely for the, his own glory and to exhibit love to us. That's the heart of our God. That's the important thing that we need to lean into. So I want you to be able to sit in that, and I want you to reflect on that there. But I also want to ask you to consider another couple steps. Because just as Paul's life was transformed and he received forgiveness and grace, he was then empowered to go on a mission His life was completely transformed from one who was a murderer to one willing to die for the glory of Jesus. And when we receive and experience the graciousness of God, we are also empowered to go forth and share his story. So what I would invite you to do is to be willing to share your story. Because here's the thing. Just as Paul's story is God's story, your story is God's story. Some people worry, like, how do, how do I share 
the gospel. I don't know much about the Bible, or I'm new to this, or I don't have a background in studying theology. What questions, how do I answer questions there? And I would encourage you to start by sharing your story. What has God done in your life that has convinced you of his goodness and his graciousness, his mercy? Start there. Share it with a family member. Share it with a friend. If you're wondering, how do I tell God's story, start with your story. Now, some of you aren't Christians, and we're so glad you're here. And what I'll tell you is you're in the midst of God's story right now. And the fact that Paul can be saved from the worst, he calls himself the worst of sinners, you can receive that same forgiven, forgiveness and grace. And I invite you to consider that today. Is the heart of a gracious God, a God worthy of following? And maybe you're not ready to take that step today. The other step that I would encourage you to do is maybe listen to some of the stories of the people sitting around you, your friends, your family members. Ask them, what about God's story has, has you so convinced? And consider those things. At Sedaris, we're all about considering Jesus. And sometimes that starts with just considering the stories of those who have experienced him. And I want to close by sharing a little bit of my story. Because I don't want to be the person who up here and says, go ahead, share your story, and not be willing to share that as well. Because at the end of the day, my story is God's story as well. And so one of the prominent moments in my life happened my senior year of high school. It was late in the year, kind of thinking about where should I go to college, what do I want to do. I had my heart set on going to Gonzaga University. It was something that I was really excited about, I had committed to. But God had a different plan for me. And that plan started one night when my dad walked into my bedroom late at night, on a school night, and he said, you need to apply to Seattle Pacific University. Now, contextually, that was strange because we had never discussed Seattle Pacific University. We had never considered Seattle Pacific University. In fact, my only recollection of Seattle Pacific University was six years earlier when we went on a tour there with my sister who was looking at colleges. And I remember my parents and sister didn't really like it. So what was happening that sparked my dad to walk into a room late at night and say, you need to apply to this school? even though I had really already committed to another one. So, I did. And about a week later, somehow we ended up making the drive up from Portland to Seattle to visit the campus. And there's a moment I will never forget. 
because as soon as my foot stepped out of the car and stepped on the pavement, I had an overwhelming sense and an overwhelming feeling that someone was telling me, this is where you're going to be. I didn't tell anyone about this at this time. One, because I was scared. Two, I was like, what is happening? Like, that type of stuff doesn't happen. But it, it shifted my trajectory a little bit. The sense of, maybe I should consider this more. Maybe I should consider this journey to be something bigger than me. And a few weeks later, I get contacted by an admissions advisor with some not-so-good news. The first is that I was, had been placed on a wait list. That was okay. He informed me I was pretty high on the wait list. And so he said, there's a decent chance that you'll get in. But the bad news came in when he, he started to explain the way we structure our financial aid gifts is that Students who get placed on a wait list don't qualify. Now, I know that there's people who've gone to Seattle Pacific here, or maybe going there right now. You all know that Seattle Pacific is a very expensive school, and I would not be able to go without that financial assistance. So immediately, my thought was, I guess I'm going to Gonzaga. And so we started that process. I enrolled, we paid a deposit. I was moving to Spokane. About a month later, I get a call from the admissions advisor saying, congratulations, you've been admitted. Are you still interested? And I said, well, yeah, I'm still interested. And then he brought the bad news again. He said, okay, I'm going to send you the package of housing, class registration, all of that there. Financial aid, the thing that I wanted to remind you of, is there's no financial aid available. There's no scholarships available. Again, those have already been filled by those who have been admitted beforehand. And we give those to the students who met the deadline. Because I applied about a month and a half after the application deadline closed. That's how late in the game I was. And so... I reluctantly said, go ahead and send the package, I'll look it over, knowing that this was a closed door. I was confused. It's like, what, what about that experience I had? I, I don't know what to do with this. Guess I'm going to Gonzaga. And a few days later, the package arrives in the mail. And I start flipping through, looking at the housing, looking at classes, all that information they send you. It's like a packet that, like that thick. And I get to the last page. And the last page is a scholarship offer. And not just any scholarship offer. It was a scholarship offer that was going to make the cost for me to attend Seattle Pacific the same as it would if I had attended Gonzaga University. To this day, I have no idea where that money came from. 
But this story isn't about me attending a school and getting an unexpected financial gift. This story is about a God who loves. Because during this season, I was ready to walk out and explore kind of what life had to happen, reconsider my faith, reconsider this whole God thing, wasn't sure what my journey had in store. And yet God stepped in and said, I have a different plan for you. And he worked a miracle to get me to a school that then surrounded me by friends and men who transformed my heart by teaching me what it meant to actually love Jesus and taught me more about the grace of Jesus than I had ever known. I share this again. This is not my story. This is God's story. God cared so deeply about my transformation and so deeply about a relationship with me that he did the unexpected. I'm not the only person who has a story. You all have a story. Those stories matter because they're God's story and they have power. So I'll ask you today, what's your story? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your grace, the ways that you step into this world and proclaim who you are. Whether it be in silence or whether it be something dramatic, you're her gracious God who reaches out to the broken and the hurting and those who have committed sins that bring so much shame. Thank you for, for your pursuit and your love. Lord, I, I pray that those who have a story have the courage to go out and consider that and share that. And for those who are just in this early stages of considering who you are and what the gospel is, allow them to find hope in those stories. We thank you for that you're the greatest storyteller. In your name, amen.